Hey, welcome to Saturday Morning Night School. No contradictions in that. No contradictions. You know, what I've been uh, dedicating a lot of my time to lately, I mean in general the last few years, but in particular lately, uh, is, uh, for lack of a better phrase, spiritual studies. And someone might hear that and think, oh, what books are you reading? What teacher you t- you listening to? Uh, and there is this kind of pressure to follow some sort of orthodoxy or some sort of established pattern. But then there's also this, and, and I'm someone who just can't do that. You know, I'm someone who, you know, there might be this path and it's been laid out for thousands of years and you follow these steps and, and consider these principles and you'll get to this place because so many other people have allegedly made it to that place using this exact process. And for me, like in every aspect of my life, whether it's fitness, whether it's creativity, whether it is some sort of spiritual pursuit, and I hesitate to even call it that because I have no spiritual goals. You know, I'm more just investigating certain sensations and phenomena that I've personally experienced, uh, certain epiphanies, uh, you know, I, I've been activated in certain ways in my life. And uh, so it's like, and I'm not just investigating it as, as as some sort of like detective, like what's this all about? Part of it is a pursuit. I recognize that, that it is a pursuit, but it isn't a goal. Um, but I'm the kind of person where even if there is this path laid out before me, I I will go off into the bushes to the side and, and hack away with a machete for some indefinite amount of time and put all this effort in and maybe hurt myself or do something. And then I'll like, it turns out I I will have made like a half circle and made it back to the main path. And I'm like, Oh, so I, I did all that. I hacked away at all those bushes. I've been cutting ferns. I've been cutting ferns all day. And now I'm just back to where everybody else was at. Uh, and I think there's something to be said for that too, though. It's not for everybody, but I do find that, Oh, it turns out I just, you know, I took the long route and, and had to learn the truly the hard way what everybody else learned just by following the basic steps that had been laid out before them. And that applies to so much of my life. And, and a lot of that is, you know, this inner rebellion, uh, this need to do things my own way, some sort of pride. I contend a lot with pride and not in a showy way necessarily, just some sort of sense of pride in like doing something my own way. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why, but it's it's something I do. But in doing that, in making that half circle off to the side where you hack your own path, and maybe somebody else has been down that path too. Maybe you're not the only one to have done it. You know, very rarely in life are we the only one to have ever done something a certain way, even if we think we are. But in doing that, you know, you discover all kinds of things over there. I talk about being a scavenger and having that scavenger mentality. And you you might find things that are completely different over there. And yeah, you may have gotten to the same point if you just followed the straightforward process or the straightforward path. But you might not have found, you might not have had some of the same epiphanies. You might not have discovered things in the same way or discovered the same things. So even though it might be more difficult and you might be like, oh, you know, why did I do that? Why did I go around there when I could have just read the manual, done this, 
the way that everybody else has, has already laid out, you know, you do find things and there is, there are unique discoveries, even if they're only unique to you. Uh, and so something is to be said for that, you know, how's that for justifying clearing your own path off to the side? Uh, and you know, I've, I've learned that just through things like fitness. You know, it's not necessarily intellectual or spiritual interests. It's also just things like working out. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I'm fucking up my elbow because I'm lifting weights that way and not paying attention to form. And if I had just gone to the gym, if I had just gone to the gym and, and talked to uh, the person, the impersonal trainer, the impersonal trainer, if I just talked to him... I would have learned how to lift right, and I wouldn't have injured my elbow. I wouldn't have tennis elbow. I've never even played. I don't even play tennis, and I got tennis elbow. Elba. I got tennis elba. Uh, but, yeah, it's that sort of idea. But, you know, you, you may have learned something, or you may not have developed the discipline. You may not have developed the, the confidence by just going to someone and being like, Help me. Will you help me lift the, learn how to lift right? You know, it's like you may not have like developed the discipline through doing that. And I'm someone who has to develop discipline independently. And I think that's part of it is in exerting the effort on my own in my own way, I develop the the discipline because discipline for me is very much based on will, whether it's quitting drinking, whether it's working out, it's all kind of rooted in this idea of will. And I guess that would be a good way to segue into, uh, well, I guess one more thing I will say is, you know, we're all, we are all looking for, not we, because I mean, obviously I'm, I'm talking about how I'm not like other people. Uh, but no, there's so many people though who are looking for a personal trainer. And sometimes they get a, an impersonal trainer, but in their mind they trick themselves and think, it's, it's my personal trainer. I go to this guy and he teaches me how to do things and, and how, to, how to get fit just for me, and then it's like you see that guy showing someone else, and it's like, you know, I bet people, I bet there's someone out there who has gotten jealous of the fact that their personal trainer at the gym helps other people, that it's their job. <laughs> it's like people, I've, I've seen people get jealous over the fact that like a waiter, they feel like a waiter is giving more time to another table, you know, it's like we just develop that, uh, just there's there's something in there, Uh but uh, anyway, uh, you know, with that idea of like, ha like having a personal trainer and it's like the idea of having a mentor or a guru or a master. And if you read about Zen Buddhism or hear anybody talk about it, there's this common theme and I'm not an expert. I just gloss over this stuff and I will get into that. Uh, but there's a common theme in old, uh, you know, Buddhist stories you know, any of that, where, you know, someone who's seeking enlightenment goes to a master, and the master is just like, I can't help you. You know, Alan Watts talks about this, so I couldn't possibly put it in better words than him. And I know I, I invoke him semi-regularly these days, but, you know, I, I do it for good reason, because he's my impersonal trainer. No, he just has a an excellent way of putting universal concepts into words that you can immediately grasp. That's why I like Alan Watts above all else. Uh, but he, you know, he'll tell stories about that, about, you know, people who travel to Japan seeking, you know, enlightenment from, you know, Zen masters, and they're simply told, like, I can't help you. The Zen master's just like, I, like, I can't teach you anything. And, uh, 
it becomes this exercise in perseverance and through the master or whatever they are, whatever they are, through the impersonal trainer, uh, and that's sort of what it is. That's that's what the, these masters would do. Is they would basically be like, I can't be your personal trainer. I don't have anything to offer you. You already have everything you could possibly need. You know, I, I'm just I'm going to be completely indifferent toward you. Uh, and through that indifference, the person who's seeking some sort of training or enlightenment reaches that enlightenment, and then they come to the master. They're like, you did so much for me, or you know. That's a sign they probably didn't reach some sort of stage of enlightenment. Not that I'm someone who can really comment on that, but it's like, oh my God, look at what you did for me. Look at what you did for me. You know, there's that idea. And then the master's still like, I, I don't even know what I did for you. And it's through that sort of indifference that that person was like, that, that person was sent down some sort of internal path. Uh, but you know, because they were ignored or because they weren't given the satisfaction, it forced them to follow some sort of internal process. And uh, so there is that idea of like, you know, the master who just doesn't do anything, just stands there. Uh, and the person, the people who are seeking something kind of revolve around them. It's almost like an orbit. And in doing that, they go through some sort of process, whether they're clearing a path off to the side, hacking through the bushes, or whether they're like just walking down the path that's been laid out before them, because that's certainly an option. Uh, it doesn't really matter. In the end, it's like, it's funny to me that the master just sits there. And, you know, so often people are looking for that master, and locally here, there's Ramtha, which a lot of people make fun of, and I've made fun of it in the past, but I don't really know anything about it. I know there's like some sort of quantum physics aspect, and the woman, Jay-Z Knight, channels a warrior called Ramtha, and it's very cult-like. I've driven by the property numerous times. It's in a little town called Yelm. Yelm. And uh, I don't know enough about it to really comment. You know, Edward Norton and Salma Hayek have been members, maybe are members. Someone killed Salma Hayek's dog a few years ago nearby here because it wandered onto a nearby property. That's what happens if you join a cult. You, they kill your, your, a neighbor will kill your dog. No, I shouldn't, uh, I don't know. I don't know if, I shouldn't joke. No, but uh, I shouldn't joke about killing dogs. Love dogs, but uh uh, I don't know. It's 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 a weird thing because there's stuff like that where you, where people go and there's this cult or this there's this following of a certain person. I, I should get away from the word cult. I don't want to. I don't want to be one of those people who's just like you know calling everything a cult just because it's you know different from my view of the world. And but I, I do question that. Anytime people come together under somebody and they want this master, and it's like. I think I just have too much of an ego and too much pride to ever be like, oh, that person can channel a warrior, an ancient warrior, and I can't, so I'm going to follow them. I've just, it's like, why am I, like, I'm the ancient warrior. I'm the ancient warrior. I'm not going to follow you. And I do have too much pride. I'm going to go clear, I'm going to go wander off into the bushes with a machete, and I'll show you what an ancient warrior I am. But that is me, That's and that's where that, like, sheer force of will that I... Fortunately, learned how to tap into or just have comes in, and here, here's my pride bragging. I, I just have a sheer force of will. Listen to me talking about my sheer force of will. 
Um, but maybe that is part of it where, you know, the mass, the, the, the wannabe student, think about that. So many people aren't even students, they're wannabe students, but the wannabe student who goes to the Zen master and, you know, asks, asks to be taught, uh, you know, and the master's like, you already, what could I possibly teach you? You know, that student probably does have that sheer force of will in them and they just, it hasn't been activated, but it's in them. And so in that way, I don't think it's some statement of pride to be like, oh, I have this will, I have this sheer force of will to do certain things, because I think that is in everybody in some capacity, it just has to be activated. Uh, and uh, yeah, but I, you know, there is too much pride, though, for me to be like to follow somebody to be like, teach me, you know, I just don't have that in me to do that. And the interesting thing is, though, is that I do feel this great humility towards something much larger than I am. And and by larger than I am, I mean beyond my comprehension. I talk about getting that little winking feeling, whether it's a synchronicity, a little sign. Uh, it could be any number of things that are difficult to put into exact words. But when you're just going through life, I mean, I, I had an experience about a month ago. We had a surprisingly rainy summer, which was really nice, and it, it's not like it was raining the whole time, but there was enough rain to where, like, oh, you know, this summer has been punctuated by some rain. It's nice. Um, some rainy punctuation. And I, I was at a park, and it was a nice day. It was sunny, but then this rain cloud, I could see it approaching across the water, and it eventually came over and just gave me this, you know, nice little rain, and I just found myself feeling... Uh, it felt personal, <laughs> you know, training, there's impersonal trainers, but rain is personal. No, uh, but it came over and it just felt so good. And I was on this little, uh, part of land that, and the way the tide had gone out on the beach, it's like this little, almost like a candy cane shape. And I was at the very tip of the candy cane where it curls around right when the rain hit me. And it just felt so good and so exhilarating, and it did give me some sort of sensation. I almost did feel that winking feeling, that some larger eye that I can't even see was winking at me. And I've been thinking about that idea again of like just getting little winks, whether it's the universe, whether it's God, whether it's anything. You know, it could be anything. Who am I to put a word or a definition on it, or, you know, who am I to define it? Uh, and I was thinking about you know, that winking sensation, and when I say that, it sounds like I'm talking about, like, an open eye, because when someone winks at you, their eye is open, and they close it briefly. You know, we all understand that, but that sensation that you get that something much larger is winking at you, to me, it's more like a closed eye that is briefly opening, so it's sort of like a reverse wink. <laughs> it's like something, it's like something that is closed off most of the time, briefly opens its eye, but it's still a wink of some kind, and I don't know that we really have a word for that, because the gen, the default, you know, human experience or animal experience for that matter, anything with eyes, the default experience for anything with eyes is to have them open almost all the time, except when you're sleeping. And, you know, and you, therefore winking is when you briefly close them. But the idea of having your eyes closed most of the time and only briefly opening them, it's still a wink, but it's a reverse wink. And uh, it's, 
I, I don't, you know, that's more of the sensation. It's more like something is briefly opening its eye at you than it is briefly closing it, because it's an absolute feeling of openness, uh, of possibility. Uh, and whatever that is, I don't know, but it's humbling, but not in a humiliating way. I mean, you think about the etymology of these words, and I've never actually looked it up, but it seems pretty obvious that humiliation and humility <laughs> are closely linked. Uh, but to me, that feeling of humility is not humiliation. When I feel true humility, I don't feel humiliated. I don't feel like something cruel has been done to me. I just feel, you know, small in some way. And it's funny how that we we do that to kind of, I don't know, kind of plays into nihilistic thinking where it's like, I, I'm so small. I'm just small. The universe is so big. Space is so big. And I'm just small. What does it matter? What does it matter? I'm just so small and insignificant. And it's like, think about the fact that you are so small. People will say, I'm just a speck on a, on a, the earth's just a speck and I'm an even smaller speck on a speck. I'm a speck on a speck. You know, people will think that way. And it's like, think about the fact that you are just a speck on a speck. And yet you have so many powerful feelings and powerful sensations and you do feel this greater connectiveness sometimes when you allow it, you know, when you do allow that to happen, when you're not just stuck in a rut. Uh, think you do feel some sort of power. Think about that. Don't use that to be like, oh, everything's meaningless. You know, I'm just going to binge watch Netflix. And I know I say that all the time, but I think it's it's worth it's worth using as kind of an example of something. But uh you know, I just I just want to uh, I'm just going to watch Netflix and, uh, you know, do whatever I want and eat the whole bag of chips and uh, whatever else. If that's if I don't know, I'm not going to criticize people for doing that, but uh, it's it's just it's seen as like a rationale for, you know, just wasting time. It's just like nothing matters because I'm so small. And it's like, think about the fact that you are so small, yet you experience all of these things. Shouldn't that be empowering? Shouldn't you? find some sort of empowerment through that humility, because uh, that's what I feel a lot of the time. When I feel truly humbled, uh, it's because I feel a sense of something much larger, uh, and in being so small, I feel connected to much more. Uh, I mean, you can even just get really cheesy about it and be like, if you truly are so small, you can fit in, into a lot more places. Uh, but we, we tend to want to, like, crawl into someone's pocket when we feel small. We want to be like, hey, master, put me in the pocket of your robe. Put me in your robe your robe pocket. And then the master's like, I don't even have fucking pockets. And uh, I don't know, back to that, back to that. Uh, but it is that feeling. And for me, it's like I do feel humbled before some greater force. And in feeling that, I feel much more powerful, and I feel, and not in a, you know, in the sense that we typically define power as human beings, but I, I do feel, you know, somehow more, I feel a greater will, you know, I feel like a much greater force of will to do the things I want to do and have a life that I ultimately want to live, and I'm not anywhere close to that, I'm not anywhere close to the ideal place. Uh, but that's a great thing too, is that in having that, in, in having some sort of will and, 
you know, having counterweights to, you know, bring you down and not in a, in a depressed way or a negative way, but just to kind of keep you somehow level, keep you balanced. Uh, and I've been reading a lot about that, you know, I've been, I'll get into that, but uh, I'll get into everything. Uh, but in having some sort of counterweight and, in, in, you know, having like a, you know, a strong sense of will, but being self-aware and humbled, uh, uh, what is it? What am I even talking about? Um, I don't know. I, I don't remember what I was going to say about that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, but it, I guess the point is, is just that I have a very hard time listening to another person and being like, oh, you're my master. I'm going to follow you. But I don't have a problem feeling that way. And not only do I not have a problem, I don't really have a choice in feeling that way with regards to some larger element out there, whether it's a god, whether it's anything. You can define it any way you want, and people certainly do. And that's actually a good segue, because, you know, part of my studies, and I would call them studies, are is looking at parallels between belief systems, between practices. I'm very interested in parallels, and not in this, like, syncretic, like, I'm just going to grab a piece of this and a piece of that and put it all together, and I'm just going to have my, I'm going to, I'm going to form my own belief system and be a master of that, and then teach people that, because people have been doing that, and people are doing that all the time, and I'm not taking anything away from them for doing that, because there are people who do that who I listen to. I'll, I will listen to their lectures and uh, read what they've written, and I, I take it in, and I enjoy it, and I find things I like and things that I may not like, and that's it, it is what it is. And anytime you're not going to follow a strict orthodox process, you're inevitably going to do that. I think you have to accept that inevitably you might end up piecemealing things together. And of course, anyone who follows a certain, a strict orthodox process, and by orthodox, I don't just mean Christianity, I don't just mean Islam, Judaism, I, you know, I also mean more, there are a lot more esoteric systems that have been developed, and sometimes those people are more dogmatic than the people who are adherents of major religions, you know, sometimes people who are part of these niche little corners of the world are the most dogmatic and orthodox people you'll ever meet, and if they are trying to sell something or teaching something, even if it's not pure snake oil, I'm not even calling these people pure snake oil salesmen, saleswomen, uh, I'm just speaking the truth here, is that a lot of times if they are teaching and therefore selling something, a book, a class, you know, classes, some sort of, if they, if they have something that they depend on to make a living, they will say, you need a system. And there's people I really like who I've learned from indirectly and directly who will say that, like, you need to follow a system, otherwise it won't work. And you'll find that even in, even at the absolute fringes of this stuff, you'll find it even at the absolute, the farthest end where you would never expect to find somebody, you know, uh, being completely dogmatic about a certain, you know, their own self tailored, you know, ragtag belief system, you'll find they're like, I, I put all this stuff together and I, I've, I've created the, the perfect synthesis of all the beliefs. And so in looking at parallels between different belief systems and different ideas, like that is not my goal. It's not my goal to be like, I'm going to build this, uh, this robot, you know, where each piece is, is taken from the best parts. And, and, and then I'm going to share that with the world. Like maybe that, if that ends up happening and it works for me, cool, but that's not my goal. I'm just purely interested in looking at, you know, what different, 
What are ideas that tend to be found in different places around the world at various times? And first, I, I mean, I think that you can split it down. I mean, I don't, I don't really have the ability to break it all down into exact, exact examples. Uh, but, you know, you look at like, what are the sensations that these different people, these different places, these different cultures, what are the sensations that they are responding to first and foremost? What are the sensations? Let's get away from the definitions. Let's not intellectualize it. How are they describing the sensations that provide the foundation for all of this? You know, uh, and I think... I've been reading a little more about Buddhism lately, and, you know, it's funny because ignorance is, is at the, it's kind of the first step. The first step, you know, you can't gain knowledge without ignorance, so there's this sort of acceptance of your own ignorance. That's a primary, you know, that's like the first stone, uh, and there's probably, a, you know, in, in order to even accept that, you have there's probably a stone before that because there's always a stone before and after there's always a, a stair another stair before and after the current stair you were on uh, but you know accepting the idea that you're coming from a foundation of ignorance that's the foundation of all knowledge is ignorance and uh, in I don't know I don't know I, for so for me it's like looking purely at the sensations that inform everything else is sort of the same idea. I don't know that I'd be able to break it down and explain it too well, but to me, like experiencing a sensation, it's like, you know, something else is there. And when you accept ignorance, it's like, you don't know it's there, but if you truly like accept your own ignorance and not in this way, because I mean, I don't like the way that word has come to be used, where it's like, it's just a way, it's purely a way to criticize other people for not knowing what you think you know. And obviously, that brings about all kinds of hypocrisy and ignoring your own ignorance. But when you accept ignorance, and you don't see it, as, when you see ignorance as a resource. I think that's what I'm coming down to. When you see ignorance as a resource, you can start recognizing sensations for what they are. And I've been looking a lot at like, what are the sensations that lead to these beliefs? What are the sensations that lead to these processes? What are the sensations that lead to these guidelines, these rules? And where do the guidelines and rules intersect? Because we think of these things as so different. They're all so different. But really, there are a lot of intersecting guidelines. I mean, I think you can look at sexuality as a big one, because that's one that people get the most hung up on. Uh, where, you know, it's interesting that these Eastern religions, these Eastern spiritual practices, actually have very similar views on sex as, you know, even the Christians and all these so-called repressive religions where, uh, so where does that come from? You know, and I, I talked, you know, in an episode not that long ago about, you know, look at STDs. And if you believe life is meaningless and you just say, oh, you know, life doesn't have any meaning, therefore, like, STDs are just some weird development in the chaos of biological existence, whatever, blah, 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 doesn't matter. But if you do think life has some sort of meaning, even if you don't know what it is, if you do think there is a purpose to things, you look at something like STDs, and you're like, there are these weird diseases that come about through sexual contact. And 
why would they just develop? You know, not that everything has to have some concrete biological evolutionary reason, although a lot of things seem to. They sure seem to. If we're going to, you know, prescribe any meaning to existence, to, especially to our biological existence, uh, it's hard to deny certain ideas because it just seems obvious. And to me, with an STD, it's like, what else could that be except a way to discourage rampant promiscuity? And it's not like if you get an STD, your life is over or you fucked up, you game over, man. You know, it's not like sometimes, I mean, maybe for this life, I mean, there's some that kill you. So, I mean, it's like I'm not even discluding the idea that it's game over because that's a part of that. Uh, Al Capone died of syphilis. You know, uh, AIDS you know, killed all kinds of people. Uh, and so it's like you look at something like that and you're like, okay, there's, you know, STDs seem to exist to discourage promiscuity uh, or something like that, something like that at least. I wouldn't be able to just be like, STDs only exist for that reason. It's the only thing I've learned in life definitively is why STDs exist. Um, I guess that would be an accomplishment if, you, if you're the guy who officially found out why STDs exist, the cosmic significance. Uh, but no, it's like that. It's, it's looking at something like that and being like, okay, like, even on a biological level, there is something that discourages promiscuity. And then you look at, you know, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity, you know, there is this common theme of discouraging, I don't even want to say discouraging, but of, of controlling your sexual urges. And, I'm, and, uh, there's, and people will point out the hypocrisy as if it's, you know, the total example of these things. Like, oh, priests molest children. Poli priests secretly have sex, whatever. But you have the priests who are not—there's this—the the priests are supposed to be celibate, but then monks—Buddhist monks are supposed to be celibate. And you see these parallels in all these different cultures and all these different groups— all these, you know, supposedly different belief systems, you see that the people who are pursuing, I guess, the purest spiritual lifestyle, for lack of a better phrase, you know, are highly discouraged, if not forbidden from any sex, but definitely promiscuity, definitely sexual impropriety. And, you know, you could read into all kinds of there could be all kinds of motivations for that, you know, beyond just spiritual pursuit. And people will be like, oh, they discourage, you know, Catholic priests used to have wives, but then they decided to prevent it so that their inheritance would go to the church opposed to the family. And of course, there's all kinds of, you know, theories. And it doesn't mean one thing is right or one thing's, it doesn't mean one idea is completely right. It doesn't mean that's not true. But obviously, there was some sort of impulse beyond that. I don't think that you know, these entire systems were founded on, you know, just trying to get people's inheritance, for example. I don't think that celibacy in the priesthood was, was, I don't think that became a rule simply to get money for the church. Obviously, that is, you know, there is some conspiracy, you know, as I, I repeat that quote, you know, uh, history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy, and I do think that's true. But that doesn't mean there isn't conspiracy. It just means this stuff kind of spirals out of somewhere, and I don't think we can quite pinpoint it in every case. Uh, but there are some parallels like that, and I think just sexuality is just one. I didn't mean to go off on you know another self-righteous tangent. Um, 
but uh, you know, you see them a lot. I mean, you look at like meditational practices, and it's like, oh, you know, I'm I'm an LA uh, I'm an LA actor. I'm an aspiring actor in LA, and you know, in order to clear my mind and you know live the live my best self, I'm going to meditate every day. Oh, but look at all these idiots praying. Look at all. Look, oh, they're going to pray. The thoughts and prayers. Oh, you, oh, how are your thoughts and prayers going? Oh, your your thoughts and prayers are making the world better, huh? You know, there's this sarcasm toward thoughts and prayers, and you know, it's like you guys are doing the same thing, you know. Whether, whether you're running through the same things in your head or not, you're sitting in a, in a place with your eyes closed in a certain position, and you're probably thinking some sort of like affirmative, positive, you're, you're repeating some kind of mantra, or you're thinking something that you want to see manifested in the world. I mean, even if you're just trying to clear your own brain, you are trying to establish some sort of peace or reach some stage of enlightenment through meditation. And even if a Christian's just sitting there with their, their hands together, like saying, like, I sure hope that uh, I get to go home early from work tomorrow. How is that not enlightenment? I mean, I think enlightenment probably, if anything, in the most human terms, probably feels like getting to go home early from work, doesn't it? You know? Uh, so the idea that those are somehow completely different is ridiculous. And I, I think a lot of people recognize that the parallels between those things, but I think we do get caught up in the details. Uh, and I don't know. And, and just the idea of whether you want to call it a God, whether you want to think of it as, you know, the Abrahamic God uh, with a white beard, whatever people love to make fun of that. Like, how's, how's your sky daddy doing? How's he doing? You know, it's like people, people talk like that. They're the same people who say like, Oh, you watching sports ball this weekend? Oh, you're going to watch them push a ball up and down? And it's like, look at what those guys are doing. These guys who who their bodies, like you're going to say that's just a game. And these guys, here, here we go, football. It's football season. Uh, uh, you know, these guys who are in like perfect physical condition, who are completely focused, who in many cases, you know, when they, you know, I, it's funny because I used to like hear football players talk and I grew up very secularly. And when I would hear a football player say, well, I've just got to thank God, you know, I've just got to thank the grace of God that I can do this. And of course, everybody's like, oh, listen to the sports ball guy, uh, you know, who, who works out every day and, uh, you know, trains and follows these strategies uh, to win the game, thanking God. And it's like, now I completely understand why players do that. Uh, I mean, I think all you have to do is listen to someone like Russell Wilson, who's not heavy handed about it. Uh, and you know, I think, you know, if you watch that guy play and if you look at that guy and you watch how he lives his life and the way he talks about his success and his his humility, I mean, you want to talk about humility. I think you can look at someone like Russell Wilson and that's he's he's truly humble, yet he's at the absolute peak of Western human existence. He's a sports star in great shape uh, who is you know, not, there's nothing, you know, he married Ciara, who I don't even know anything about, but, you know, there's nothing apparent, there's there's no contradiction apparent in that guy's life. He seems to be a pure entity who is just succeeding, but yet he has this great humility, and he, he of course, is a devout Christian, uh, but when he speaks about God, there's something to it, you know, there's something, 
you do feel like there is something behind him. And it may not be something that I'm interested in. It may not be the pro- the approach I would take, but it's undeniable. I think that's what I'm getting at. There is something undeniable about, about him. And I, I think it's the same thing that people see in a Zen master. Whether or not Russell Wilson is a master, I don't know. He's a young man. It'll be interesting to see what he does with his life after football. Uh, truly interesting. It will be, uh, truly interesting. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the same sort of feeling I get where it's like, you're looking at someone who has, there is some sort of harmony that that person is working from and it seems effortless, but yet, you know, they've put a lot of work into it. I don't know, football tangent, but it's the same sort of idea. Like, you know, people will dismiss, Anything they associate with, you know, mainstream religion, uh, when really it's like those exact behaviors, those exact ideas are playing out, even at the most esoteric fringes. And like I said, even in esotericism, especially esotericism, magic, whatever it is, uh, you have these orthodox, you know, Crowleyan groups, you know, and, and it's like, and they'll fight with each other. Like, they're no different than these sects of major religions that split off and go to war for centuries in the Middle East. You have these these people who won't talk to each other because they interpreted uh, Crowley differently, you know what I mean? And it gets even more, it gets even smaller than that. People will find differences, and people who are so similar will fight over them. It's just what happens. Familiarity breeds contempt. I say that over and over again because you see it happen over and over again. And and people also want to tell you, you know, when I say too, like spiritual studies, someone would ask me, I go, what are you reading? What book are you reading? What are you following? And, you know, sometimes just Wikipedia. You know, it's funny how Wikipedia has developed. I think about Wikipedia a lot, actually. Uh, not so much lately, but I, I did spend a while, like, thinking philosophically about Wikipedia a lot. Because when it first came out, like, I was in college when Wikipedia, uh, Wikipedia became big. And professors were like, don't cite Wikipedia. Whatever you do, don't... This is how every liberal arts professor that I had sounds. Whatever you do, don't, don't, uh, don't cite Wikipedia. Anybody can edit Wikipedia. And yeah, I, I understand why, especially then where it was a much more uh, transient, amorphous resource. But it still was a resource. Because sometimes it's interesting just to see, even when something has no standards, it's interesting to see what ends up happening with it. It's almost like that libertarian approach where it's like, well, let's just see what happens. Uh, and there is something self-correcting, and we see what happened with Wikipedia, where, you know, guidelines were imposed and all of that, and, you know, it did end up becoming a, a pretty valuable resource, not something you need to cite on your papers. You don't want to, you know, even just for, even if it is totally reputable now, you don't want to be the person who's like, well, I read it on Wikipedia, so it's right. You know, you don't really want to be that person but you can use it as a great general resource, especially for making comparisons, especially for connecting ideas. And that's the entire point of Wikipedia is connection between ideas. It's a everything is hyperlinked to each other. I mean, that's the whole point is interconnectedness. It's like you can be reading about something completely different and they'll have a link that's like, oh, this is compared to see also. And it'll have a list of ideas that 
you know, manifested in completely different parts of the world in completely different times that seemingly had no, seemingly no, had no connection, but someone sees the analog between these ideas and you can compare them. It's, it's a great system of comparison. Uh, Wikipedia is, uh, and what do you compare Wikipedia to? What can you compare that to? There's things. Uh, so, you know, I don't think anybody should be ashamed about using Wikipedia as a resource and a valuable studying tool for that matter. And it doesn't mean it should be the only thing. I feel like you should balance things out. You should. You got to. Uh, follow my orthodoxy, my Wikipedia orthodoxy. I'm going to form a religion around Wikipedia. Uh, but it's a great resource for just getting a brief overview of a lot of different ideas. And there's still a lot of problems with Wikipedia. You know, I'm a, an organized crime researcher, a mob researcher. And it's a terrible resource for that. Because even if they source from books, first of all, there aren't very many people who are, who, there aren't very many people, there aren't very many like serious researchers to begin with on that subject. And as a result, you know, even the books, even the published books have a lot of flaws, a lot of bullshit. People have made up a lot or drawn the wrong conclusions. Uh, so, you know, organized crime in particular is just, it's a fatally flawed subject, even though some people, some great people have come out of the woodwork and there's a small network of people who I feel like have a pretty good and accurate understanding of the history of something like the U.S. Mafia. It's still, you know, on a mainstream level, extremely flawed, and that's reflected perfectly, or rather imperfectly, on Wikipedia, where you get a lot of misinformation, because even if they're sourcing a book, that book might have been based on extremely poor, dated research, and that's more the, the standard than it is not when it comes to, you know, the mafia on Wikipedia. But yet it's somehow kind of like, Fitting in a larger way that something that's based on deception and crime would also be wrong, you know. <laughs> it only makes sense that, you know, the public perception of something like that would be somehow wrong. It just kind of fits the nefarious nature of a subject like organized crime. Once again, there's the Wikipedia philosophy being like, you know, even though all of this information on Wikipedia is wrong about this particular subject, the fact that the subject itself is based on wronghood makes that somehow right. <laughs> the murkiness of what the, you know, the murkiness of the subject makes the murkiness of the research and the incorrect conclusions and misinformation somehow right. Weird how that works. Uh, but yeah, like I was saying, though, it's it's not a great resource on that. But on subjects that you have a lot of people caring about, like, you know, religion, spirituality, there are a lot of people thinking about that all the time. Uh, and you're going to end up with, you know, pretty, uh, pretty well synthesized Wikipedia articles. You know, if you want to read about Buddhism or Christianity, Wikipedia is great. Because you've had a lot of people who have differing opinions, the same opinions, who have all combed through that repeatedly, and you know it may not be perfect, but nothing is, and it's a great resource for that. And it goes back to the cognitive dissonance thing when I say synthesis, because you know you'll have people who you'll have Buddhists who feel completely differently; they have complete different interpretations; they follow different branches. 
and they look at the same Wikipedia page and they're like, well, I don't agree with that interpretation, so I'm going to add mine. And the result is there might be some, you know, contradictory ideas or there might be some ideas that are at odds with each other. And like I've seen this even just this morning, like looking at something where it's talking and I don't learn the words like for me, I'm not interested in like memorizing the specific you know, the, the, these foreign words to describe, it's like, oh, that, that's what they use to describe, you know, concentration. I'm not going to learn the Buddhist word for that. I'm not interested in that, but I am going to read about the sensation and, uh, the way that that is put into practice. You know, I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the concept, not so much, you know, memorizing words and all of that. So I probably wouldn't be able to have an intelligent conversation with someone who's actually interested in that because I'm just like, oh, I don't know what that means. Uh, it's, it's just how I am. I'm off in the bushes here hacking away. Um, but, uh, you know, in having that cognitive dissonance of like, oh, this person, they define concentration this way. And that other branch defines it this way. And there's conflicting there are conflicting interpretations of how to apply that concentration to a meditative practice and what the result, you know, what the result will be. I don't know, whatever that means. Uh, but in having those conflicting ideas, you can form some sort of synthesis. You can form something out of that. So it's in the same way that I, I recommend that people don't shy away from holding conflicting beliefs in their own life. Because if you have conflicting beliefs in your own life, uh, as long as they're coming naturally to you, you will either form a synthesis, which could be a new idea, or it could that synthesis that synthesis could be a new idea that hybridizes those two conflicting ideas, or the synthesis could just be a way of balancing those two. It doesn't necessarily bring them together into one, but it's very much like procreation, where it's like these two different people from different backgrounds come together and they synthesize and they create a child. Uh, you know, it's it's not entirely different from that. Or even if you get getting away from something biological, it's if you have a good friend, if you actually have chemistry with someone, when you talk, you basically create a third person who only exists when you two are talking. And that's basically what chemistry is. You don't realize it when it's going on, you know, but like when you have chemistry with somebody, something is created that isn't normally there. And it's not created when you talk to just anybody. You know, you could be talking to somebody. They could even be another friend or a relative. They could be someone you like and you like to talk to and spend time with. But you don't really have chemistry, and therefore that third entity isn't created. It could be anything, but I like thinking of it as a third person. Uh, you create this third person who suddenly appears, and uh, it's almost like you're communicating through that third person. You're both communicating through this third person. And I think it's the same thing with ideas, where two ideas might be completely different, but if those ideas have some sort of chemistry or there's some sort of similar current running through them, they can create this third idea that might not just be the sum total of the two ideas that came before, that, that created them, it might not be a perfect hybridization. It might still be at odds. There might even be some cognitive distance within it still. But it creates something that makes some kind of sense, and it makes sense because it's happening. And uh, so that's what chemistry is. When you can talk to somebody freely, uh, and it 
you feel that there's almost some sort of entity, and you may not be aware of it. You're probably not, because the second you become aware of it, it takes away from it. But if you think about it later, you'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, every time I talk to that person, it's almost like there's something else there. It's almost like there's some force. It doesn't. Have, you don't have to think of it as a third person. You could think of it as almost anything. People talk about it just as chemistry, which is a very like reductive scientific way of describing it. We got chemistry, some invisible force, invisible chemistry. Uh, and uh, that's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me that that happens. That's exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about sensations. Let's first look at the sensation. That's, to me, what are the common sensations of the human experience? And beyond the human experience, I mean, we have that with animals. I mean, we get along better with animals, we, uh, with certain animals more than others. You know, there are certain cats that you, that are just, you, you know, you just know that, like, you and that animal are on the same page. There are dogs you meet where you're like, you might even like, you, you might like this dog. It might not be a dog who, like, barks at you. It might be a dog who's just, like, indifferent to you, but you both like each other. But then there's another dog where it's like, oh, me and this dog have, like, this symbiotic understanding. And I've, I wasn't, I, you know, I talked earlier about dogs, like Salma Hayek's dog getting killed and stuff. And I used to be someone who would say, I don't like dogs. And dogs didn't like me. And they, you know, picked up on that. Uh, the, the, the third person, you know, that was created betw- between me and just about every dog was a very negative one. And it resulted in dogs barking at me, dogs singling me out. As my friend Miles used to say, it's like dogs will out you as a sociopath. <laughs> dogs and babies. Uh, uh, but it, I used to get that feeling. Like I remember being stoned at this kid's house in high school and a dog walked into the room, and there was like a room full of kids, and I'm just sitting on the couch minding my own business, and the dog just like gets right up in my lap and just starts barking at me, and like I was just being high and young and just not being comfortable with dogs, of course. Like, of course, you know, that dog went right for me. Uh, but I had a, I had the privilege of, you know, meeting a dog a couple years ago that I just immediately, I just, I made a decision to be friendly with this dog. Uh, her name was Dolly Parton too. And maybe it was because her name was Dolly. Maybe that was part of it being a Dolly Parton fan. I was just like, I'm going to give this dog a chance cause I like its name. Uh, but this dog and I developed a very close relationship and it completely changed the way I interact with dogs. It gave me an understanding uh, so it's interesting how that happens, though, how it's like you there is just that intangible force that connects you to people, to things. Uh, and that's really what I'm talking about is like, what's the. You know, it, I don't know, it, it's in looking at patterns and looking at parallels, I think that's ultimately the goal. It's not just to, to rest on this intellectual, you know, scientific like these things are similar. Compare and contrast. It's like the goal of, of looking at parallels is to, is to find some sort of synthesis and not necessarily in some sort of patchwork way. Because I want to say, too, that I'm not someone who has that goal at all. You know, I'm, in 10 years, you may talk to me and I may be like, I'm following this exact orthodox tradition. Because I'm looking for results. I'm looking for results. Uh, there's, there's a guy I like. He, he's a magic practitioner, teacher, and he has a lot of great insight, and he comes from a background that isn't similar to mine, but I relate to, like, because points of reference are important, and there's not a lot of people out there who come from, like, an underground music and art background, you know, and 
I use the term underground very loosely, more to describe like an aesthetic and, you know, subculture than anything. It's not like underground in opposition to the mainstream or anything like that. It's just, to me, it's just a certain foundation, you know, like, you know, and if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but this guy comes from sort of that background, not exactly, but enough, there are enough points of reference to where it's like, okay, here's a guy who, you know, he knows some of the same things. Uh, and, but I was a little disappointed and I was listening to him where he, he'll be like, you have to follow like this process. And he's involved in these very esoteric amorphous, you know, it's not like he's following some like ancient order, you know, it's like, he's very much kind of put together his own patchwork, but he's like, you have to follow this to get results. But he's also selling that. He's selling classes. He's doing these things. And I was a little disappointed. I'm like, oh, man. It's like, I know you're not you're not that bad. You're not like a snake oil salesman. I know what you're saying. You, you've, you've said a lot of things that I believe to be true. And in listening to him, I, but I was just a little disappointed because he... he He's like, in order to get results, you have to do these things. You have to follow these rules. And maybe you do, but those aren't the results I'm looking for if that's the case. And so in looking at different ideas, it's very easy to be like, well, I'm going to build my own patchwork that I then have to follow. And it's like, that's not where I'm at. That's not where I'm at. You know, I, I'm just interested in, in seeing where things intersect, where they don't. And thinking a little bit about why that is, um, but it, it's it's a fun process too. It's it's not it's not like you know just studying for school. And I use studying even you know with a little bit of uh, reservation, but also with a little uh, sense of humor, you know, because I, I say like spiritual studies. I, I have to say that very loosely. You can't take yourself too seriously if you're pursuing this stuff because you will be constantly humbled and and through that process when you are constantly humbled uh, you'll actually realize you know I don't know <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm I, I, I could hear that was a very pregnant pause because you know I, I don't want to I don't want to make any kind of declarative statement about this stuff uh, but I, I think through being humbled, you do feel a greater sense of power and connectiveness. And that seems to be what people ultimately want, is they, no matter what they're pursuing, no matter what kind of spiritual path, whether it's an orthodox religion or just something very loose, a very vague guideline that they don't even know, you know, maybe they're just trudging through the bushes with a machete like I am, no matter what they're doing, there is some quest for power, understanding, and connected connectiveness. I don't know which of those to use. Connected connectiveness. Uh, there is some desire for those things. And you say power, and it's like, uh, you know, it's not necessarily some sort of material power. It's not power over other people. But I think there's a power in, in the feeling itself in the sensations themselves, you know, to go back to that idea of the eye winking at you, but not opening, but, uh, or, or sorry, rather, it is the eye opening briefly and then closing, in the sense that, you know, when you do get those sensations of that wink, of these, this closed eye opening one eye briefly and then closing, you do get a sense of power from that. 
a power up. You know, in an episode not that long ago, I was talking about, you know, paganism and all of that and power ups and listening to music as a power up, something that gives you that adrenaline surge, that feeling of energy. It activates your chi. It activates your chi. And uh, there's a parallel, you know, uh, adrenaline and chi. Um, and then someone's going to say, chi is not, it's nothing like adrenaline. It's far more universal and pervasive and not just based on one little moment where you get excited, like, uh, no, whatever. Uh, but it, it, you are looking for a power up. I think that's what I should say when I say, like, most people who are going down some path, they're looking for either to, to find some sort of power within themselves to control their own life, uh, the power to understand things on a more universal level. And some people are looking for more hands-on, you know, gripping power. They are looking for that. Uh, but there is, you know, ultimately I think everybody is looking for some kind of power-up. And what's so interesting to me is that that sensation of being powered up, of something activating you, comes through humility, which we think of in relation to essentially being humiliated. But I think through that process, through the process of being humbled, that's where you find out like where the real power is. You know, because if you are humbled, you feel powerless. In theory, being humbled makes you feel powerless. But it also allows you to recognize what true power actually is. And I would never be able to define that. But if you feel a closed pair of eyes opening one eye briefly at you, maybe that's just a little glimpse of it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.